The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are kind to gather us here as small people who are ourselves small people. You are a grand, great, almighty God. You reign over all the earth, over the affairs of this country, over the affairs of our church, over each thing in our lives individually. You are God and we are not. And for that we say thank you. You reign and you are good. We just sang about some of what that means that you you acted in a mighty way to save us, and we say thank you. And, and now you will act, we trust, in ways that we need to build us up. And so give life to your word here. Help us to think well about it. Make clear what's true. Work in us to refine us and grow us up. Build your church. Thank you for being the God who reigns. We trust ourselves to you. And ask you now to fill this moment and speak. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. So who here enjoys confrontation? Giving it or receiving it. Most people don't. You talk to anybody, lots of people say, I don't like confrontation. I, it, even even when done very carefully, it's at best awkward to, to speak to someone. And confrontation, of course, has a spectrum of, of hard and firm to just questioning and in, being inquisitive. But to somehow speak to someone and say they've done something wrong and need to course correct, that is uncomfortable at best. And often it strains relationship and produces embarrassment and anger and hurt and injury. Sign me up for that said no one ever. We, we all don't want that. And so we try to avoid it. Which means that while some problems do sort of go away like we hope, it also means that with regularity, lots of problems just go unaddressed and remain unresolved and they fester. We've all lived in that. And so we know the problems that come with confrontation and we know the problems that come with no confrontation. And in this world, we're often kind of stuck between that rock and hard place, not wanting to speak up and then struggling along with the problems that come from problems. Really, we just want it all to disappear. Or maybe somebody who is comfortable with confrontation, somebody like the Apostle Paul, maybe he'll speak to it. Maybe he'll address it. He loves confrontation, right? Every time we look at him, he's kind of like in somebody's face. In, individually or, or a whole church. He seems to be very comfortable and evidently relish it. And we do see Paul often doing that. We've seen it in this letter here in 2 Corinthians. Both individually and the whole corporate church, Paul firmly and in hard teaching confronts people, the Corinthian church, with regards to its sin. We've seen that. 
And now here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to see that again, see tell of, tale of that again. We're going to find out more about it, but we're going to find out why he did that. Maybe we could say how he brought himself to do it. What he knew, what he, what he had in his mind. And the big point is, it's not his personality. We're going to see a hint of this here. He doesn't like confrontation any more than the rest of us do. So it's not about personality. It's about something that Paul had in his mind, something that he knew would come after the clash. He knew there'd be a clash. He, he felt that. But he saw something else. And that was a, a confidence that drove him forward to speak to people. He knew that God would be involved in it and it would be for their good. And that's the kind of confidence that God would take from this passage and would press into us if we would, if we would hear it. Creating a confidence in us to help us not just be confrontational, but to help us actually be better friends, better family members, better church members, and to, and to create an environment in which we speak to one another the truth in love, confronting when it's needed for our joy. That's what we're going to see this morning in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 7. So let me read that, beginning in verse 8, down through the end, and then I'll draw out two observations from it. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God." Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. The end of 2 Corinthians 7. Two observations from this lengthy passage, and here's the first. Godly grief over sin often comes as Christians trust in the Spirit and speak up. 
Godly grief over sin often comes as Christians trust in the Spirit and speak up. And I, I say often, this, this often comes in Christians speak up because it's not, it's not the only way or maybe even the most common way. We, we are grieved sometimes over our sin in, in a host of ways. Sometimes just reading your Bible all by yourself. Sometimes just sitting in a church service and singing with the people of God and seeing where everybody else is and realizing I'm not there. And something kind of pokes you. Sometimes no mention of sin at all. Just hearing of, of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. It, it kind of arouses in us a, a desire to, to, to draw near to that God. And, and we see sin in the way. So God works in a, in a host of ways for our holiness. Not just only this way, but often. Not every now and then often some sort of a confrontation of a speaking up is what God uses. And now, I'm using the word confrontation, but that obviously there's a, there's a wide range behind that word. So in some ways, it, it is very blunt and, and very much a direct in-your-face sort of statement. And on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes there's just a, a questioning of, help me understand what's going on here. I, I'm seeing something that I don't, quite get. Can we talk about that? It's speaking up. It's bringing the issue out rather than just letting it slide. And God often uses that to generate godly grief. That's what happened here. As was mentioned last week, this whole passage here, this, all, all this chapter 7 is sitting in a context. There's a specific situation that had happened in Corinth when Paul was last there. A particular man there had attacked Paul, God's apostle, had attacked him, torn him down, rejected him publicly. This grievous situation happened publicly, and the church there had just kind of let it slide and done nothing about it. And in so doing, they became complicit in it. And so Paul then had to address not, not the guy, but the whole church for allowing and for coming kind of partnered with this. And he left then with it still unresolved and he had to confront it in letter form. And he wrote them a letter that was stern and hard and sent it with Titus, his trusted friend. And eventually, again, this was last week, Titus came back with news about how that had gone. Good news, he'd responded well. But all the while, while he's waiting for Titus to come back, we see here verse 8 says, I, I was grieved by that letter. As soon as he hit send, he, he kind of thought like, this is going to be hard. Because he knew it was confrontational, it would hurt them. They're going to be grieved. That word's used repeatedly in verses 8 to 11. The Corinthians were grieved, deeply hurt, made to sorrow. The letter cut them. It pierced them, made them feel bad. And so Paul rejoices at their grief because he loves hurting them. That's not it, no. That's not, that's not it. He rejoices not exactly at the grief but because the grief led to something. Grieved into repenting, he says, 
That's why he rejoices. Repentance is the goal, and that's where they got to. They got to that goal because they felt a godly grief. It's the end of verse 9. Different from a worldly grief. Godly grief is the goal. So what is that? Godly grief. Sorrow. Grief. Remorse. That's grief. Being disappointed, upset, that's grief. But with regards to sin, with what, regards to what one has done wrong, and specifically what one has done wrong in the sight of God. It's verse 12. When Paul explains his thinking behind writing the letter, he says, I wrote, but I did not write trying to do anything with regards to the guy who actually committed the first sin, and I did not write trying to do anything with regards to me, the one who was sinned against. I wrote trying to make something clear to you all, the church as a whole. I wanted something revealed to you in the sight of God. I wanted you to see your true earnestness for me, how you disregarded me and let me be shamed by that sinful man and so that you would feel the sting of it because you would realize how much you actually regard me, what you actually think of me, and what you had actually allowed to have happen, what you'd done. And that not in front of me, in the sight of God. I want you to understand and feel this in God's presence. What he's getting at is the difference between maybe two parents, let's say. Two parents, similar situation. For some small slight, a parent tears into his kid, berates him. Just as hard. And then, as the parent sees the, the little one just kind of melt and begin to cry, grieved, like, oh, that was too much. I was too hard on him. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. And it draws him near and, and hugs him. I'm sorry, that was, that was way over the top. I should not have talked to you like that. It, that did not... What you did did not deserve that, and, and I was out of line, and I'm sorry. Come here. Affection felt and, and grief over what, I, what I'd done, and, and I don't want that to be the case. I'm sorry, Junior. That's, that's a grief, and, and the parent feels that. The parent is pierced by that, and there's a mix there of affection and sorrow, and that's not what Paul's talking about. Another parent, the second parent, does the very same thing, and the kid cries and, and melts, and the parent then feels this is what Paul's after. Oh, I'm sorry. Come here, come here, come here. What have I done, Lord? What have I done? This one here is precious to me, and I, oh, I'm so wrong. God, help me. 
That's the difference. It, it might look on the outside the same. The kids draw near and, and there's, a, there's a reunion of sorts, but inside the second parent is standing in his or her mind before God. That then is a grief that's Godward. A godly grief. A grief that is felt with regard to the sin, but with respect to the Lord who stands over all of it and is the judge. The first one is worldly grief. A grief that's only here on this plane, that is according to the standards of the world and is in the, in the end a grief over consequence, over what has been lost, over what's been broken or ruined and oftentimes has a bit of a, of a of a human pride in it, like, I can't believe that. I'm better than that. I don't want to be like that anymore. And it turns then towards my own efforts to improve myself and maybe to defend my reputation and establish myself as superior to that. That's, a, that's an anomaly. That's not actually me. A worldly grief is, is common in the world, and it turns us in the end towards ourselves and our own effort, and it draws us away from God and dependence on him. And so a worldly grief leads to death. That's what Paul's getting at. And that's not what Paul wants in the church. And it's not what we want. He wanted to put them before God and make clear to them what had happened, what they'd done and what they, they knew they needed to have done but didn't. God wants people to sit in front of him and see and be grieved over, by, over, over their sin. That's a gift given by God. Paul wants that, but Paul can't make that happen. Godly grief is a grief that is towards God. It's a grief that's in, with regard to God's evaluation of sin. And in the end, godly grief is a grief given by God as he opens our eyes to ourselves. He doesn't open our eyes to all of our sin. We'd be crushed, thank goodness. He doesn't do that. But in his wisdom and his timing, he does open our eyes to our sin and shows it to us for what it is. That is his Spirit's work in us. Jesus said so at the end of, towards the end of the Gospel of John, that when the Spirit comes into the world, he will convict the world with regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, that's, that's part of his work in, in the Christian as well, to convict us of, of what sin is and what righteousness would look like and, and how God is against that to bring to us clarity and this conviction to show us the grievous, awful, evil nature of our sin, to show us what's in us, to give us godly perspective on sin. That's the gift of God. Now, I think it's possible that Somewhere about right now, some of us are thinking, is this a Christmas sermon? And, and the answer is, no. But of course it is. 
It's not deliberately a Christmas sermon. That I, I've taken, obviously, the passage that's next, right? This is next. I'm preaching through 2 Corinthians, it's next. So it's not a Christmas sermon that I didn't, I didn't go off and preach the beginning of the Gospel of Luke or something from the prophet Isaiah predicting the coming of the Messiah. So it's not a Christmas sermon. But if, if you track with me here, this is completely about Christmas. Because what I'm talking about is God, by his Spirit, in the Christian, opening our eyes and causing us to see our sin and to be grieved by it. And you should be, if you're a Christian, you should be thinking ahead on this. You should think like, and I know why that is. That's the next point. It's coming up. For our comfort and joy. It's in the title of the sermon. It's coming up. It's, it's all through the passage. We're going to get to that. that. That's the next point. But more to say about that. God does not grieve us because he wants us grieved. No. But thank God that he grieves us. It is a gift from our gracious Father to open our eyes and show us what's really going on, who we actually are, when and as we depart from him and from his word and head off into our own wisdom and walk in our own understanding and pursue the paths of the world, would you not want to have your eyes open to that? Yes. You ever gone hiking with your kids if you're a parent in some sort of a somewhat treacherous area? The path drops off over there. There's animals around. There are snakes here. A lot of rocks. Run on, do whatever you please, Junior. I don't care. No. No. You want to explain. You want to show them. Watch out for that. Don't go there. You steer them. You correct them because you love them. This is the graciousness of God to grieve us. We're going to talk more about that. That's coming up. But, but for now, the focus is on God grieving us. This is the work of the Spirit in us, and this is a great confidence. This is what lies behind Paul. This is what's in Paul's mind, part of what's in Paul's mind, as he steps up to the plate again to confront, to speak up on something, knowing, I cannot do this. I'm going to write a letter that is not going to go over well. Comma, but I'm not the one writing the letter. God, his spirit, God the spirit, he writes, and then he, he enunciates the words, and he presses them into their minds. I've got to trust in that. I've got to speak. I, I've actually to take pen to paper. But the spirit is the one who's writing, and the spirit is the one who's speaking. It is his work. And that's the confidence that lies behind Paul and moves him forward and empowers him to speak, which can be so encouraging to us as we face the same sort of challenge. I know, right? We're, we're people. We've lived in the world long enough to know that if I go there and say that, hmm. But I'm not going to be the one saying that. I've got to open my mouth, yeah. 
I've got to speak up. But the Spirit of God goes before. This is what lies behind verses 13 to 16. When Paul says in that, that paragraph, I was boasting about you, Corinth, to Titus. And now at the very end, I have perfect confidence in you. My confidence has been perfected. It's been grown up and strengthened all the more. What was he boasting about and what is he now double confident in? That they would receive this letter from Titus, that they would hear it and that they would obey it. You can picture the conversation. He gives Titus his letter. Here, Titus, take this letter to Corinth. And Titus glances at it and said, you want me to take this letter to Corinth? This is a pretty sharp letter, Paul. I know, I know. I need to speak the truth to them with a wide open heart. I need to speak the truth to them in love. And they will hear it. Because they're Christians, Titus, the Spirit of God lives in them. And the truth of God, carried by the Spirit of God, will resonate with the Spirit of God living in them. And they will hear it and they will respond. And they will be cinched up tight again to me and to Jesus speaking through me, which they need for their comfort and joy. Which we're coming to. They're Christians. They'll hear it. Go. Watch. If that hadn't happened, Paul would have been ashamed and shocked. But it happened. He trusted in the Spirit and spoke up and left the results to God. This is what we have to keep in our minds as well when we're looking at a situation where I could speak up here, I could, I could maybe I need to, to more firmly confront, maybe I just need to explore and bring up a question. It's going to be awkward if I do that, though. But to remember Actually, God wants to create godly grief over sin in his church. And that is for the growth of his people. Remembering that. Remembering that that will come because he will not abandon us, but will stay with us and, and is committed to maturing us, will not leave us to ourselves, but he's committed to it, means that somehow or another, he will use me. So I speak in confidence. Truth and love. Confidently. Often then, God brings godly grief through just such a confrontation. I depend on the Spirit and speak up. That's the first point. Paul had in mind a confidence. God will use me. God in them will resonate with the truth. And that will be for their good. Which leads us to the second observation. Godly grief over sin leads to comfort and joy for everyone. Godly grief over sin leads to comfort and joy for everyone. So clearly the Corinthians are, are struck with this sense of godly grief. And they were grieved, it says, end of verse 9, into repenting. So they felt a godly grief. 
That produces repentance, verse 10. And repentance then leads to salvation, which comes with no regret, which is why Paul can say, you suffer no loss for me in the end. Salvation is second to nothing. So if you end up with that, you end up with everything. So grieved, repentance, that is, grief leads to a true change, a turning of the heart. Repentance is not first. It's an important point to get straight here. Repentance is not first a change of behavior. That behavior comes, that's what verse 11 is, immediately after, immediately comes up. A changed life will come, but repentance is first a change on the inside of me. It's a change of heart, of inner perception of what is and what's true. It's the adoption of a different perspective, turning from how the world sees things to how God sees things, turning from pursuing what the world's pursuing to pursuing what God wants me to pursue. To be grieved by God is to show me, as God grieves me, he shows me what is, and something then right sits in me, and I see it right for the first time, and I'm, I'm repelled, I'm turned, I'm given repentance. Which leads to salvation. Once and for all, initially, that's That's exactly the process by which we are saved for the first time. God opens our eyes to sin and opens our eyes to who he is and we see him as our only hope and we are saved. But then every day after that, day after day after day, living as repenters, we are drawn away from, we are saved from sin and its destruction and saved to God until one day we are finally fully saved in the very presence of sin. There's a whole chain there that is all unified. God gives grief, God gives repentance, God gives salvation, all a gift from God. That does lead to a changed life. It's verse 11 and following. They heard it and they were grieved into an eagerness and an indignation about, about what they had done and, and a longing and a zeal, probably partially for Paul, probably partially for God, and, and a desire to punish the one who had been let slide, the, to enact church discipline against that, the man in their midst. And at every point, finishing up verse 11, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter, such that we could look over all this and say, that's right. That's the right response. That's the right stance there. They did not receive Titus as an enemy. They received him as a friend. They did not kick him out. They didn't shift blame back onto Paul. They heard and they obeyed from the heart. That's what happened. And while we will never be in exactly that same situation, of course... We can look at it and recognize some common denominators. We can see that chain of truth and realize that's why grief. Because grief, godly grief, leads to repentance. And that's why repentance, because repentance leads to salvation. It leads to spiritual salvation, it leads to daily spiritual salvation, it leads to changed life that saves from trouble. That's why. 
sign me up for that. I don't love confrontation, but I see that chain and I want to be a part of that. In fact, that's what it means to be a part of a Christian body to one another, one another, is to be a part of that chain for each other. Grief and repentance and salvation. Be God's hands moving one another along that chain for the end result of comfort and joy. If you notice, the the passage feels like it's a lot about repentance, but it's really about joy. Beginning, middle, and end. Verse 9, Paul is rejoicing. Verse 13, he is full of comfort and rejoicing. And verse 16, finally, he's rejoicing. Beginning, middle, and end. There's a lesson in that. That a passage that's on the front end seems to be about grief and repentance and sin is actually the path to rejoicing. To comfort and joy. For Paul and for Titus first, to be involved as God's instruments to see the people of God moved, changed, to see God at work in his church, to see this is the Lord. I trusted it. I've heard about it. I've read about it. It actually happened. I spoke something, and the Spirit of God in them, like I thought would happen, it actually happened. It resonated with them, and they were moved. God shepherded his people. God changed them. God grew them up, and God used me in that process. They experienced great delight. We would experience great delight, great comfort, and a pleasure of being useful to honor God and do good to your brothers and sisters. They're excited about that. They they experience that joy, seeing God at work, seeing ones that they love moved and changed. That should be on our mind too. Here we are as as we are connecting to people all around us in the body. Oftentimes, we will probably most of the time let love cover over a multitude of sins. Most of the time, that's a multitude of sins. That's, that's how we are most of the time. But at times, maybe because we see something that we, we can't let go or something that's, that is causing pain to somebody else or we see is particularly difficult and, and afflicting for the actual person sinning, There's something that we have to speak to. And to see with your mind's eye, God can, God will use me. And on the other side of this, that's going to be fun. That's going to be delightful. That's going to be tremendously comforting, very close to the word encouraging, very close to the word encouraging. That's going to be very encouraging to see God use me. I'm going to, I'm going to speak up. I depend on him, but I'm going to speak up. That 
changes your approach to your family, to your friendships, to your church. We have to do it carefully. Nobody, nobody wants to be around somebody who, who walks around like a detective, like constantly looking for things that are wrong, ferreting them out, and convicting. Nobody wants to be around that. It's, it's when stuff rises up and you say, I see that, it's there, and I don't think I should avoid that. I'm going to engage with that in, in a, a right, as best I can, in a, a loving and gracious and truthful way, I'm going to engage with that. But if you would live in your family, with your friends, with your spouse like that, help me understand, honey, what's going on there. Would it not be delightful on the other side of that to see your spouse groan? W-N, not O-A-N, grown, grown up, matured, made more beautiful in Jesus. And to think, I had a hand in that. God used me. I'm so excited for you, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited for me. I'm thankful for that. I got to be a part of that. God, I see God at work growing you up, and that happened partially because I kind of said something. And now we work differently and you are different and you are, you are more beautiful in Jesus and you are, are filled with, with delight over him. That's a good thing. Would that not be fun? And is that not part of what it's supposed to be like in marriage? Not you do your thing I'll leave you alone because I know if I cross that, that's the third rail right there. That's going to be a problem. I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. You go. That's not what marriage is supposed to be about. That's not what a family is supposed to be about. That's not what a church family is supposed to be about. Would it not be, for you to be a change agent in God's hand, would it not be a delightful thing? Can you not see that with your mind's eye? Paul saw that with his mind's eye and then got to experience it and reports it to us so that we know it and see it and can maybe a little bit more believe it. Confrontation is difficult. It's confusing and it's hard, but it can be a ton of fun. On the other side, comfort and joy comes to me because, of course, comfort and joy comes to them, him, her, the other. Because the whole reason that God wants to bring this up in the first place is to grow them up. To take the one who was wandering and cinch that one back up tight to a master who wants to enslave them. No, 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 no. No, to cinch them back up to a father who wants to love them. To a friend who wants to walk with them. They're, they're kind of pulling away and wandering off. This is where their life is. This, when, when we are wandering off in our sin, it is, it is life to be brought back to Jesus. It is life to be corrected and shown where the path lies and to be empowered to walk in it. And anything that steers us back is gift. Grace. 
and leads to our joy as we are brought back to the one for whom our hearts are made and brought away from death and destruction and deception. The Corinthians end up, we would end up comforted, delighted, rejoicing, drawn back to walk with God. It's comfort and joy for Paul and Titus. It's comfort and joy for the Corinthians. Both sides of of the Christian relationship here, both sides of the church relationship, the, the one confronted and the one confronting, it's comfort and joy for all of us. Drawn away from the world and drawn back to God, that's why God grieves. That's why God grieved his son. To make it possible for all of us to be drawn back to him. To be drawn back to walk with him and drawn away from the world and protected from it. So he could bring to us and bring us to comfort and joy. In the end, ironically, a sermon that's not remotely about Christmas is actually about Christmas then. Sometimes I, I, sometimes I preach a deliberate Christmas sermon. Sometimes I don't. But can you sit on, what is the December 20th? Can you sit on December 20th and see what's going on in the manger here? That manger is in every passage in the Bible. Because in one way or another, the Bible is about God stepping in, God, taking initiative, to step in and draw a wayward people back to himself by grieving his son to deliver us to comfort and joy. Comfort and joy has always been the goal. God wanting to bring you delight in himself. He had to deal with sin and so he sent Christ to do it. And he had to deal with sin in a way that brings grief first. And so Christ was a man of sorrows. But at the end of that whole train of tears, Jesus saw a joy set before him and so said, sign me up. I want a part of that because I want to be the one father that you use to draw them back and I want to see them grown up and made beautiful. It would be my joy and my delight to have this people brought to me clean and perfect and pure and holy. And I want to see them not just cleaned up, but I want to see them with a smile on their face. I want to see them reveling in this joy. So give to them the joy that I had with you always and that I will have with you again. Give it to them too. Christmas and Easter are in this passage 
And it's an invitation to us to join into that, the flow of God's work in the world. To see a joy set before us, both when we are confronted and when we are called to confront. To speak to sin, to speak up, dependent on God, knowing that he will do the work and that the end of his work for his people is always glory. That's what he's about. Trust him. Speak up. Receive it from others. Keeping in mind that God's work in this for me is always my joy in Jesus. That's what he's about. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.